So when I was thinking about what I wanted to speak about, one of the wonderful things about this particular tradition is that we can really talk about whatever we want. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I wanted to talk about love. And um, the opening of the heart, some aspect of that, because, you know, love is a very vast topic, and I only have a short time. So I'd like to explore a little bit about what contributes to the opening of the heart around love, and talk about it particularly within the context of the Buddhist tradition, because we could talk about love in many, many different ways, but I'd like to talk about how how it comes through in the Buddhist teachings. But the interesting thing is that the Buddha really didn't teach much about love. The word that we find in the scriptures is metta. Many of you have heard this word, the uh, Pali word metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is translated as loving kindness. And I think that there have been teachings here on Monday night on loving kindness, on metta. Metta is the, the wish or the desire for all beings to be happy. And we include ourselves in that because we are also all beings. So it's that, it's that wish uh, for happiness, for all beings to be happy. But tonight I'd like to bring in another teaching on love that is rarely talked about. We rarely, rarely hear much about it. And this is a Pali word that is uh, Dhamma Chanda, Dhamma Chanda. Pali, for those of you who may not know, is the language in which the teachings came to us from the time of the Buddha. So Dhamma Chanda, which is translated as uh, literally desire for Dharma or energy, or a zeal for dharma, dharma being the teachings, the, the nature of things, the universal laws. And this dhammachanda is a form of love, this energy that comes through as, as, a, as a, 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 a love, a desire for something to happen. And it's a wholesome desire. And I would like to, tonight, I'd like to call this desire our heart's desire, a heart's desire, as opposed to kind of a mental desire, the kind of mental desires that we can actually get caught with and can bring about suffering instead of an opening of the heart. And I want to explore this, this uh, the difference between these two tonight. So want to explore this heart's desire, the movement of the heart towards that which we love towards that which we feel is important. And the interesting piece for me that I really want to explore is that desire, the word desire, is, is usually considered, in the basic teachings of the Buddha, it's considered the cause of suffering. And many of you have heard that, you know, in, this, in the, the, the Four Noble Truths, which are the, the pith teachings of the Buddha, the first noble truth being that there is suffering in life. The second being there's a cause for that suffering, which is often translated as desire. 
The third is that there is a freedom from this suffering. And the fourth, there is a path to the end of this suffering. So in the Second Noble Truth, we are told often that this desire, this wanting, the wanting mind, is the cause of our suffering. And we're told to let go of our desires. This is like such a core piece of the teaching that we often hear. And there's so much confusion around this word desire that if we don't really understand it well, we can actually not be able to genuinely love. It can interfere with our ability to love and to open our heart to manifest the things in our life that are really important to us because we'll, we might keep thinking, well, that's just desire. You know, I can't have that. I can't want that. It's just the ego. You know, I'm supposed to let go of that. I'm not supposed to want anything. And maybe you've heard this. I've heard this so many times from people who are practicing, who are walking the path. Is, I can't want anything. And, and it's really unfortunate if somebody believes that because it, it, it's another way that the heart shuts down. It's another way that the heart closes off. For me, too, in the early days of my practice, I started practicing about 25 years ago. But in the early days of my practice, I was really afraid of my desires because of this very reason. I thought that they were bad, they were wrong, that I wasn't practicing right that I was supposed to get rid of my desires. And then if I received pleasure from something that I was doing or something that I was involved with, I thought that I must be caught in some kind of desire. And that's why it felt so good. You know, whatever the thing was, the situation I was involved in or, or my relationship with something that I loved, even an animal or a, or a person or, or something, that something was wrong. Somehow I couldn't make sense of that very well. And I thought that somehow within the pleasure, inherently within the pleasure was attachment. That somehow that pleasure was coming about because I was attached. It was a little bit, it was kind of a confused understanding. And that, that if I allow myself to really feel the pleasure and to open to that, that joy and that sweetness and the pleasure that comes from experience, that that would actually lead me to more desire and more attachment. And so I could feel myself really holding back and feeling cautious, feeling afraid to, to really love, to really, to really open to that genuine feeling of love. And when we really let ourselves feel love, it can be a little bit scary sometimes because it, sometimes we can feel like it can be, take us uh, somewhat out of control in ourselves. It's, it's like an unabandoned love or an unabandoned kind of feeling. And so we, we may want to pull back or feel cautious about that energy that arises when our heart starts to open. But this desire is not all bad. And this is really what I want to explore tonight. So we can really come to maybe a, a broader understanding of how we can understand desire in the Buddhist teachings. I want to begin with a, um, 
three lines from one of Mary Oliver's uh, poems that had been going through my mind over this last few weeks. And, and I think in a way that's why I knew I had to speak about love, because these lines just kept going through my mind. And I'm sure some of you have heard these. It's the beginning of her poem called Wild Geese. She begins, you do, not, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your hands and knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And she goes on, she opens up around that. But I, I love that last line, and that's what was going through in my, my mind. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And I, I like how she put those words together because she's really pointing to, in a way, that, that animal kind of instinctual part of ourselves that knows what it loves. It's like it knows what it wants to move towards. It, it knows what it's attracted to, uh, what, what brings energy, what brings joy. And yet there's so many things that get in the way of us actually allowing ourselves to feel that, to know that, to acknowledge that. And so there's the encouragement here. Let that soft animal of your body love what it loves. Love is pleasurable. When we love, it's a good feeling. We want it. We want the feeling of love. We want to experience ourselves as loving, loving people. That's a good feeling when we experience ourselves that way. We want to have people in our life that we love because that brings pleasure brings sweetness, it brings, pl- brings joy. We want to have things around us that we love, beauty, things that make us feel comfortable, feel good. And we want to be doing things that we love. Yeah. And the presence of this pleasure is not an indication of attachment. Because pleasure is one of the feeling tones that comes through experience, all experience, on the continuum of pleasure on one end and pain on the other. That is the nature of experience. So all experience is either going to be pleasurable, or it's going to be painful, or it's going to be somewhere in between on that continuum. And experience changes very quickly, as we know. So it's going to change somewhere on that continuum. It, it can't actually go outside of that. There aren't any other feeling tones we can experience be, be, besides pleasure or pain or somewhere in between. And we experience pleasure all through the day, but I think sometimes we take it for granted somewhat. We, we may not even recognize it, or we may even ignore it when it's there if we don't have the ability to be aware, to be present, to be 
in touch with our experiences. But as we come more into the present moment, we're more with ourselves, we experience ourselves more fully, we can start to really feel in a wider way, in a fuller way, the pleasure as it starts to come in to our bodies, into our minds, into our hearts, and, and feel uh, more fully the joy of that. We're in summer now, you know, and the weather has been really magnificent, and kind of fresh. You know, lots of, we've had lots of wind and, and coolness. I've just come from Florida uh, last week where they said on the TV that the temperature felt like 102. And you don't even go outside there because it's so hot. But here, coming back here this week, it's, I really can appreciate the freshness of the, of the weather and, and just how invigorating the, the coolness is that we have here. And it feels good. It feels pleasurable. I like it. You know? And really, really letting myself have the pleasure that I feel with that. One of my very early teachings with a teacher named Manindraji, who, uh, for those of you who know Joseph Goldstein, it was his first teacher, Manindraji from India. And Manindra would give us a very simple teaching. And he would tell us, when he was teaching us, he'd say, when you feel happy, be happy. When you feel happy, be happy. Relax. Really fully relax into that happiness. And it, you know, on some level it sounds like such an obvious kind of thing. But, you know, we really don't do it very often. It's, it's like when things are okay, somehow we can go to sleep. We may not be so uh, attentive or awake or connected to our experience. We think, okay, things are nice. They're okay now. I don't have to pay attention. But what about paying attention to happiness, to pleasure, to the heart being open, to really feeling, embodying that experience when it's there? And to fully relax and enjoy that relaxation while it's there because it changes, as we know. So this is the experience that I'm wanting to point to tonight. It's a, it's a pleasurable, open, kind of loving feeling of the heart that we don't actually talk about so much, particularly in the Buddhist tradition. As you know, we talk a lot about suffering, don't we? You know, it's like, in fact, Buddha, the, Buddhist, the Buddhist teachings are really known about, they're known for dealing with suffering and the end of suffering. And the Buddha, 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 Buddha taught two things, suffering and the end of suffering. But the end of suffering is, is happiness. The end of suffering is joy. The end of suffering is an open heart. It's love. It's connection. And yet, we, we sometimes don't talk enough, I think, about with that, that language, the language of love, the language of joy, the language of pleasure. Because pleasure in the Buddhist traditions can, can be kind of a dangerous thing, you know? Dangerous thing to feel pleasure. And, and there is a reason for that, which I will talk about in a moment. But this is a pleasure 
that I'm pointing to tonight, the pleasure that doesn't have any clinging in it, a pleasure that doesn't have any wanting in it, a pleasure that is purely the experience itself for what it is. When the heart is relaxed, the body is relaxed, we're present with what's happening, we're not wanting anything to be different in that moment. We're not demanding our experience to be more or to be otherwise. It's just what it is, and it's enough. And in that enoughness, we feel the joy of that. In fact, that is where the pure joy comes, the true joy comes, is when we're not wanting anything more. And so we can begin to recognize the times we go through the day where we really are fine. You know, it's okay. Nothing more needs to be happening right now. And it's good if we can catch it, because sometimes it doesn't last very long (laughs) before that, you know, idea arises again that, wait a minute, I could be doing this, or I could be having that, or I could be wanting this, you know. But I think when we start to pay attention to it, that pleasure without clinging, without wanting, is really there a lot of the time if we bring our attention to it. This pleasure without wanting, without clinging, is a kind of equanimity that is infused with joy. If you think about it, if you feel into it, it's, a, it's an equanimity, an equanimity that's not moving out towards anything else at that moment, but, but a still, kind of quiet, non-reactive state of mind that is infused with joy infused with a sweetness. Equanimity and joy are two other Brahma-viharas, as loving-kindness is a Brahma-vihara. Someone said that this pleasure without wanting is like the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. not really smiling so much. <laughs> some, of the, some of the Buddha statues have much more smile, especially the Thai statues. A smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. So even staying in connection with the truth of things, that pleasure, that joy can still come through. It doesn't have to be an either-or, but we can, as we deepen into understanding, as we deepen into connection, we start to feel the, the source of that sweetness within our being. So the Buddha did not say that pleasure was the cause of suffering in the Second Noble Truth. But he actually said that what the cause of suffering is, is a word in Pali called tanha, T-A-N-H-A, tanha. And the reason there's so much confusion in the English teachings of the Buddha is the way that this word has got translated, tanha. Because tanha 
is usually translated as desire, which is where all the confusion comes. So the cause of suffering is tanha, but tanha is really literally translated as thirst, as in the result of a, a drought or, or um, dryness. So, so there's that thirst, that wanting to, to uh, wet the, the, uh, the dryness. Some teachers like the translation of um, drivenness or compulsion or addiction, which, which uh, implies a little bit more of this, this energy of wanting. And um, I think more accurately, when we use the word desire, the more accurately it's the fever of unsatisfied desire. That's the cause of the suffering, the fever that's in that unsatisfied desire. And this is what gives rise, rise to greed, the, gr- the greedy mind, the, that mind that isn't satisfied, because there's a fever in the mind. It's also ca- classically known as craving. The Buddha said, craving is the chief root of suffering. It is craving which gives rise to ever-fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. This is from the Dhammapada. So that the, the craving gets bound up in the pleasure. There can be the pleasure without this clinging. There can be the pleasure that is satisfied pleasure. But when it gets bound up with the craving, then it gives rise to suffering. This tanha is an energy, as, as all of our thoughts, feelings, mind states, emotions, they're all energy that are, that are propelled outward towards an object. But this, this energy is bound up with self-interest. What's in it for me? What am I going to get from this? How is it going to satisfy me, make me feel better? And this tanha, this craving, propels us into seeking for something. Something or someone to possess, to have, to own, so that we'll feel better. To get rid of that fever, to get rid of the compulsion, the, the, the pain of the addiction. And it's to have it for me. I want it for me. And this seeking arises out of a sense of incompletion or some kind of sense of deficiency because we we feel unsatisfied. So we're looking for something to make us feel good about ourselves again, which are usually found in things or people that are pleasurable. You know, that's so we're we're in this this seeking mode when we're caught up in this tanha. And when we get it, we feel good again. And we do feel good. It's not an illusion. But it doesn't last, does it? because it's so that pleasure in that moment is so bound up with that thing or that person or that situation that we haven't really located the true source of that pleasure, that joy, that love, that happiness within ourselves. 
So this tanha is supported and nourished by ignorance, by not seeing clearly, like wearing colored glasses, like we have colored glasses on, and, and this tanha colors our thoughts and our feelings and our intentions, and it conditions this disconnection from our wisdom. It, it, it conditions disconnection from our, our, our wellspring of our own heart, of our own love, from our awakened heart. And when this compulsion arises, we feel small, we feel limited, we feel, we feel narrow, because we've collapsed back into that small self, which is so dependent on outer things for our happiness, for our pleasure. So we, we feel so small in ourselves. We lost that sense of expansiveness, of spaciousness, of, of ease, of, of sweetness, of joy. We, we, we've, we've gotten confused when this is here. This tanha is an unwholesome desire. We call it an unwholesome desire. It's a greed which is bound up in self-interest. And this has different intensities uh, depending on how strong it is in our mind stream. Uh, when it's a strong tanha, the Pali word is uh, chandaraga, which is a strong lust or an exciting desire. And when it's present, we can feel the suffering of that because it's completely bound up in, in the, the object bringing us pleasure, the, the self-interest. But fortunately, this is not the only experience that's possible. And as we really pay attention, we can start to distinguish the kinds of experiences that are running through the mind, that are running through the heart. We can begin to know when the experiences of, of clinging, the pleasure that arises with clinging are there, and when it's just the pure expression of pleasure arising from an open heart, from an awakened heart. When the tanha is absent, when it's not there, it means that our mind is not so bound up or distorted. It expands, the mind expands, the, the heart expands, the, the being becomes much more spacious. The, the clinging has dropped away, which means also the hatred that arises from clinging has dropped away, the ignorance that arises from clinging has dropped away, and, and we are in a very pure, open-hearted state. And in this place, there's still energy. The, all the energy is still moving, but it's not bound up in the clinging, it's not bound up in the wanting, and it's propelled outward in the form of intention or impulse or will or desire. It can still be projected out into desire, but this is pure energy. It's a, it's a purified state of mind. It's not colored by greed. It's not colored by hatred. It's not colored by delusion. It's not like when we don't, when we're not, when we're not, when we're caught, when we're not caught in the wanting, then everything stops. Sometimes we might think that when we get to the goal of the practice, which is to be free of our suffering, of our pain, then there's nothing. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> then we, we arrive in some kind of magical place where 
everything stops and and everything's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, have you had that thought sometimes? <laughs> you know, so we, we arrive in some kind of ecstatic, blissful, magical, open space. It's not like that, unfortunately. <laughs> it's like there's still all this energy, but there, actually there's a whole lot more energy because it's not bound up in the, in the, in the wanting which really contracts us and makes us very narrow. But we're, we have a very purified kind of energy that's moving in us, and this energy still takes the form of impulses or desires, wanting. But it's a different kind of wanting. It's a purified wanting. In the, in the text they say, now the mind is filled with non-greed. Non-greed is the same thing as renunciation or letting go. The mind is filled with non-hatred, which is the same thing as loving-kindness. The mind is filled with non-delusion or non-ignorance, which is the same thing as wisdom. So we've got letting go, we've got loving-kindness, we've got wisdom that's starting to inform our desires that's infusing the desires, it's infusing the intentions, infusing our impulses to act. When the mind is infused with these things, we call these wholesome desires, we call these impulses wholesome desires, or dhammachanda is the Pali word, dhammachanda, which literally means the desire for dharma, but it also implies virtuous desire. Virtuous desire or, or zeal, desire or zeal for that which is right, that which is good, that which is true. The heart begins to inform us, not just the, the conditioned mind that is bound up in all of its ideas and beliefs from the past, but something very immediate, very present, very real, very genuine that we can draw on from our wisdom, from our love, from our heart, from our awareness. It's available in those moments. Another word for uh, this state is kusala dhamma. Kusala means skillful or clever in a moral sense. These are wholesome or profitable desires which are morally good or skillful. They're usually associated with greedlessness or hatelessness. Not the desires arising out of self-interest, but genuine desires to be of benefit, to help, to be in connection with. This is the movement of the heart. We We all know this feeling. It's not a feeling that is... Uh, so obscure to us. We, we, we all have these feelings. We know people who, who don't even, aren't very solid on a spiritual path, and yet their heart is so big and so open. They, they're caring, they're loving, they, they want to help, they want to do things that are going to make a difference. This is the, the, this purified feeling that is moving outwardly, that is propelling the energy outwardly to make things happen so that people will feel, uh, be, be free of their pain, be free of their suffering. 
This wholesome desire arises from the goodness of our heart, of our being. It doesn't arise out of models that we've learned of what's right and what's wrong that have been imposed on us over our life, but it comes from a completely different place in our being where we just know. We know what's right. (laughs) And we know what's going to make a difference in any given moment. This Dhamma Chanda has the same feeling as desire, as we, we know the desires that are bound up with clinging or craving. It has the same feeling as desire, but it's directed towards benefiting for, for society, for nature, for a greater good. And that can, that, that can be directed towards ourselves as well. It can, it can be for the greater good for ourselves so that we can grow, we can learn, we can become more than we are. We can, we can rise into the potential of our being. So it's not just directed outward, but that same Dhamma Chanda can be directed towards ourselves so that we take care of ourselves in a good way. We take care of our, our, ourselves in a wholesome way. This is the awakening of the heart. And this happens in, in, in practice. This happens as we, we start to become more connected with, our, with ourselves, with our being, with our heart. We start to want to take care in a different way than we have uh, in the past. And I think you're all familiar with this. You all know this. This Dhammachanda is nourished by intelligent reflection. It's nourished by wisdom rather than by ignorance, which is what supports the tanha. This energy is a desire for true well-being, both for ourselves and for others. It's the movement of the heart, the expression of our love. So in our practice, we have all kinds of examples. We have the loving-kindness practice where we actually we actually direct energy to wishing and desiring for, for love and for well-being for all beings. Compassion, the movement of the heart in compassion that's turned towards pain, that's turned towards suffering, the, the very genuine wish for beings to be free of their pain, be, a, be free of their suffering. The movement of the heart in generosity, of truthfulness, honesty, patience, all the ways that the the heart can manifest, that energy can move in ourselves. Any wholesome impulse or intention that focuses the mind in order to uplift the mind and the heart is the energy of Dhammachanda, is this purified energy of the heart. This can be devotional chanting, can be music, can be prayer, dancing. When we get involved in these kinds of expressions, they become sacred expressions, where we, the whole of our being becomes involved in, in the manifestation of these things. Wanting to help, caring for others, for the world, caring for your children, caring for the ones that you love, 
your mothers and fathers, all of this, it's that, it's, it's that movement where we are so deeply connected in, in this way. Even our strong intentions to develop our meditation practice, this, this longing, this desire to know, to understand what all of this is about, the, the meaning of this existence, to know ourselves, to know existence. This, is, this desire that we feel, this longing that we feel for practice is Dhammachanda. And I remember so many people saying, well, I'm not supposed to desire anything. You know, when we start to feel really excited about Dharma practice and meditation, oh, that's the ego, you know, that's desire. I'm supposed to push that down. No, I mean, this is, this is beautiful, vital, alive, dynamic energy that is informing us. It's drawing us, it's pulling us to our, our goal. It's pulling us into our heart, into true nature, into divine nature. We can listen to this. We can follow it. We can wake up with it. We don't have to push these feelings down when they start to come. Sometimes we don't, we don't necessarily hear this. It took me a long time to hear this kind of a teaching, that I could actually let these feelings uh, uh, arise in my heart and my being. As we start to connect with this, this energy starts to flow naturally. It flows easily when our heart opens. We feel this, it manifests as a good feeling, as a pleasurable feeling. We want it. (laughs) We all want this feeling. We feel alive when we come into this place of wholeness within ourselves. It's wonderful. Our energy isn't bound up so much with a small sense of self, the, the self that, that's so concerned and worried and, and caught up with the past and the future and, and regrets and concerns, but, it, but a, a freer sense of ourself. It's the truest joy which arises out of the truest love. Mm. It's a wholesome state of mind that feeds on itself. It gains nourishment from its own presence. It starts to become the fuel for itself to grow, to expand, to get stronger. And it takes us deeper deeper and deeper into the experience of our awakened heart. This is what, how we develop in our practice on the spiritual path. As we deepen, this dhammachanda gets stronger, and it becomes a selfless desire that grows out of love and compassion for all beings to be free of suffering. And this is called the bodhisattva attitude that sometimes you hear about, the bodhisattva. (laughs) When our practice deepens to this point where all of our impulses, all of our desires, our wishes, are for the liberation of all beings everywhere, all of our actions start to be motivated by this wish, this desire. One of my teachers, Hamid Ali, I'm involved with the Diamond Heart School, Um, for the last few years. 
Hamid Ali talks a lot about this transformation of the heart that happens, and he talks about how this, uh, our actions begin to arise from a completely different location in our being, not out of some mental idea about what we're supposed to be doing, right or wrong, uh, moralistic ideas and ideals, but something completely different, a dynamism of who we are. Hamid says this, in the deeper stages of our practice, there is a spontaneous and natural flow of presence. This presence functions as the inspiring and motivating center of initiative, action, and creativity. The dynamism, the dynamism of being is intrinsically intelligent, which manifests as appropriate responsiveness. And this is important because we begin to respond appropriately in any given moment when we're connected to ourselves in this way. He says, it manifests as appropriate responsiveness to the needs of whatever situation one finds oneself in. When love is needed, the dynamism manifests presence in the aspect of love, which guides us to act in loving ways. When strength is needed, it manifests presence in the quality of strength guiding us to act with strength and vitality and so forth. So we can begin to trust this manifestation of our being that we will know how to respond in any given moment as we drop into these places within our being. He goes on to say, this dynamic essence of one's nature is not an ambitious activity trying to actualize its ideals. Rather, it is a completely non-selfish, dynamic flow of essential nature unfolding naturally and authentically. This is what begins to happen for us. And we know this, you know. You know this. You know, as I speak about it, 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 there's something in your heart that says that it's true. I, I want to read um, this piece from Martin Luther King, Jr., a short piece, because I think that this is, this is a piece of a speech that he gave um, in 1968 at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlantic George, Atlanta, Georgia. And in these two paragraphs, you can hear this Dhammachanda, you can hear this selfless expression of love and compassion coming through his words. And perhaps hearing it in this context, you will you perhaps understand a little bit more about the, understand the power and the strength of Martin Luther King Jr. from a different place. how absolutely astonishing this man was. Every now and then I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral. I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. Tell them not to mention that I have 300 or 400 other awards. I'd like somebody to mention that day, that 
Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. That I was a drum major for righteousness. And all the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. It's just this. When the tanha, that, that energy that's bound up with what's in it for me, drops away. This is the potential within each one of us. You know, it's not like Martin Luther King Jr. was really extraordinary on some level. Certainly he was one of the most exceptional beings. However, on another level, he wasn't. He was just like us, actualizing his fullest potential. Just like is possible for each one of us when we begin to allow ourselves to feel what we love, to listen to what we love, to to listen to where the desire is moving and how the desire is moving, what what is important to us, what attracts us, what, what is speaking to us. And to really take time to listen, because it's hard to listen with the way that our culture moves, our society moves towards so many, we're, we're so encouraged to be attracted to things that are, that are really not going to bring us a lot of lasting value in the long run. But the spiritual life, the spiritual teachings, the practice, we start to point us in a different direction. It's like we have to We have to go against the current. We have to go against the stream to start to listen. Listen into our heart to what we love. Sometimes it's not so easy to know what is tanha and what is this dhamma chanda, what is motivated by self-interest and what's not motivated by self-interest, what's if there's attachment, if there's not attachment, if there's clinging, if there is clinging. I mean, that's really what the spiritual practice is about. That's what our meditation and our awareness practices are about, to see if we can begin to make distinctions within our consciousness, within our mind, that we can start to say, oh yeah, that's what the craving feels like, that's what the addiction feels like, the compulsions feel like oh yeah, this is what the pleasure, the joy feels like when there's not the clinging. This is what the pleasure feels like when the heart is open and moving in a pure way, in an an undistorted way, in an unconfused way. This is what our mindfulness practice is for. Mindfulness practice isn't an end in itself so that we just can be more mindful. But mindfulness practice is the vehicle for us to wake up to our deepest wisdom. To show, to to have a tool, to have a way to begin to investigate our mind, our heart, our being, 
who we are, this world that we live in. It's our, it's our investigative tool so that we can come to deeper understanding, so that we can begin to awaken to the fullest potential of who we are, that we can then begin to make a real difference in some way, which is so badly needed, as we all know right now. So the way to practice with this, just um, two suggestions tonight, although just to remind you again, this is really the whole of our practice, but two suggestions for, for this evening. One is to really take time to examine your motivations for any, any action. All of our transformation rests on the tip of our motivation or our intentions. And in every moment, there is an intention that arises. An intention to do something or not do something, like right now, those of you who are still sitting here, you have an intention to still sit here. Even it may not be conscious, it may be conscious, but there is an intention arising in every moment. An intention to... uh, Perhaps it might be an intention to pay attention, an intention not to pay attention. (laughs) I mean, there is always some kind of intention arising. So first we ask, what's motivating my action right now? And we can ask this question many times during the day. What's motivating this action right now? Am I only interested in myself and what I'm going to get out of it? Or do I have a wider view, a wider view uh, about how the, uh, my actions are going to affect others and the, the world? We, have, we can have a very wide perspective. And then we follow those intentions that arise from our wisdom, from our openness, and we let go of those that are arising out of our narrow, self-interested view. The ones where we are so bound up in ourself without having a, a wider perspective. So we begin to sort that out, make sense of that for ourselves. Like, for example, being here tonight, I think this is a really good example. I mean, you had to really make an effort to get here tonight. And this effort to be here tonight isn't necessarily just for yourself. It def- definitely, in one level, is for yourself. But the benefit of your awakening is so much bigger <laughs> than yourself. Any way that you start to become more open and expansive starts to affect everything that you do, every person that you meet, everything that you're engaged in. The the ripples go out so widely, so broadly, through your intention to wake up, through your intention to hear the Dharma. This is definitely an example of Dhammachanda. This energy, this zeal, this um, desire for dharma, for understanding. And for myself, my motivation for coming here tonight is for myself, 
because I gain so much from the, the, the reflections, from the study, from the meditation, and from being here and sharing with you. There's a lot of joy and benefit that I get. And yet, it also includes the knowing that there is some way that you also might be affected by the Dharma teachings this evening. And the, the possibility, the potential that that, ha- that carries is so, it's so profound that it's a, it's a movement of Dhamma Chanda, that, that desire, the desire for Dhamma, the longing to wake up, to wake up together. And so we can begin to examine our motivations. And the second suggestion before I end tonight is to, I guess it's an encouragement as well, is not to be afraid to love. Not to be afraid to love. And to know that by allowing yourself to really love what you love, you begin to learn about yourself. You begin to find out about yourself and who you are. And you even learn about attachment, and you learn about suffering. But it's important not to be fearful of attachment so that you shut down and don't love before you really experience what love is. It's like, first allow yourself to love and worry about attachment later, basically. (laughs) Sometimes we do it the other way around. You know, we worry about attachment so we don't want to get too involved with loving but I think I'm really coming to understand that the only way we can really learn about the suffering of attachment is to let ourselves love. So that maybe is a a good place to end, coming back to Mary Oliver's line of, let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And as you do that, you can't go wrong. We come into a deep place of trust in this teaching of love, and all opens up from there. I'm sorry I didn't leave any time for interaction tonight, but maybe another time. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to the teachings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.